Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code, a lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant, AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash codeassistant. IBM. Let's create. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Thy character must have the names of the five angels written in the midst of Segelum Ameth, graven upon the other side in a circle, in the midst whereof must the stone be, which was also brought, wherein Thou shalt at times behold, privately to thyself, the state of God's people through the whole earth. Go, and thou shalt receive. Tarry, and you shall receive. Sleep, and you shall see. But watch, and your eyes shall be fully opened. One thing which is the ground and element of thy desire is already profited, and out of seven thou hast been instructed of the lesser part most perfectly. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Christian Sager. And from the beginning there, you may think that we were, I don't know, performing a ritual of some kind and trying to summon an angel, and you would be half right. <laughs> That's right. That is uh, that is a quote from the writings of uh, the the legendary, the mysterious, the influential Dr. John D. The topic of both episodes this week. Uh, and he is a fascinating character, an Elizabethan mathematician, uh, conjurer, possibly a spy, yeah. uh, cryptographer. Uh, the, the list goes on. Uh, in, First and foremost, a, a, a mathematician, but it gets it gets a lot more complicated than that as you try and piece together this man, the world he lived in, and what he really believed in. D is is one of those characters that we we've been talking about doing an episode on him for a while now, and when we dove into the research, we we really realized okay, this needs to be two episodes, and the way that we've decided to split these episodes categorically is. This first episode is going to be more grounded in the sexy, occult, magical stuff. And the second episode is going to be grounded in his scientific endeavors and his statecraft. Um, there's so much about him that I learned doing this. And there's so many different interpretations, yeah. too. He's just this fascinating individual. Um, if you're unfamiliar with him... I guess the best way to describe him is that he was one of the leading intellectuals of his time. 
it may not sound like it, given some of the things we're going to say in these episodes, but he had magical interests. But despite that, he brought developments to England in cartography, navigation, mathematics, astronomy, and cryptography. And his reputation in alchemy and astrology totally influenced the court of Queen Elizabeth I. He was no doubt influential in that respect. Yeah, he 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 had a rapport with uh, with Queen Elizabeth. Uh, some historians go as far as to say that they were friends, right. and uh, you do get the idea that there may have been as much of a friendship as was possible between the Queen of England and uh, you know a, a essentially a common born right. intellectual who dabbled in magic. <laughs> right? Yeah, um, we'll say this later, but he did think of himself as her Merlin which is really fascinating and comes into play. So the I, I said that we're going to split these episodes up, but one thing that you have to keep in mind is that the magic and the science overlap a lot, too. Yes. Um, and so even in things like when he's advising them on national matters, on expanding the English empire, he's still thinking in magical terms like he's Merlin and she's King Arthur. Right. He's he's a guy who, like, like I say, it's, it's essential to keep the mathematics in, yeah. in, in in mind. But it's not like he's a guy who, all right, I'm going to do my job here, which is science or mathematics. And then in my free time, I'm going to do a little sorcery. Right. And, in, and then also I have this advising gig uh, with the queen. He saw it all connected. He saw it as part of a, a, a single tapestry of cosmos. And so there's a note I just want to provide here before we really dive in deep, which is uh, I was reading an article in History Today that came out earlier this year by a woman named Katie Burkwood. And she says, keep in mind that the main sources for the story of Dee's life are all his own. <laughs> um, so mainly what we're looking at what we didn't look at this. We looked at people's interpretation of those primary sources. Mm-hmm. Well, but, we dabbled in well, some yeah, of the primary we did. sources. That's true. Uh, but mainly his diaries, uh, which cover the period from 1577 to 1607, so about from his age of 50 until he died, those were a big source of his, uh, I guess, life history. And this also coincides with the period of time where he was up to his most fantastic endeavors. Mm-hmm. So keep that in mind. Uh, his early years were documented in his own autobiographical account, which was written in 1594. And what he was trying to do is explain his past to the crown, basically to Queen Elizabeth, uh, because he was trying to secure a royal position or an appointment that would secure him a regular income. Uh and another source is the books that were recovered from his stolen collection. So we're going to talk probably a lot throughout the course of these episodes about he had this infamously huge library. Oh, yeah. And it was ransacked at one point. And some of those books have been recovered. Uh, and he wrote extensive annotations in their margins. So some uh, D scholars, I guess, go and find these copies and read those annotations to try to learn more about him. Apparently, much of that library now resides with the Royal College of Physicians, I think, in England. Yeah, so it's it's kind of difficult to tell truth from fiction in some of these cases. And Robert and I did our best uh, when we read something that sounded really strange to corroborate it with multiple sources. And we we did find that. But then again, like those sources were all mainly coming from D's own writings. That's right. There, there are, of course, a number of wonderful books out there on D and his work. Uh, some books with, with, with different focuses than others. Uh, one book that I kept looking at was the, the one by Benjamin Woolley. Oh yeah. The Queen's Conjure, uh, Excellent book, very readable. I recommend that to, to anybody. Uh, but yeah, this is a guy that is really in many ways a near unbelievable character. Truly stranger than fiction. Like, if, if Alan Moore wrote him into a story, you'd chalk it up to, oh, well, that's just Alan Moore's wondrous imagination and use of fictional and historic and pop culture hybridization. The same if he had appeared in an Umberto Echo book. Yeah. You might be tempted to think, oh, well, this is a, a fantastic creation, this Dr. D, but, but no, he, this was a, a real, Real man. Uh, he, he lived, he wrote, and, and I'm not sure there has been anyone quite like him since. We, we see oh. parallels in some of the figures that we've covered on the show and we'll, and, and are planning to cover, such as John C. Lilly or Jack Parsons, but, right. but D kind of stands alone. 
Yeah. And it's funny that you mentioned Alan Moore because one of the sources that I went to was a, a History Channel special that aired in 2002, and it was narrated by Brian Cox. Oh, and it's all about John Dee's life. And Alan Moore is one of the go-to experts that they oh, wow. summon. Uh, you know, they cut to him every once in a while, and you hear that Alan Moore voice. <laughs> he's he really knows his stuff about D. Um, I imagine because. Alan Moore is really into sort of like the history of English magic and stuff like that outside mm-hmm. of his own fiction. But, um, yeah, he, the first, first of all, I recommend like, if you're really into John D go check out this, this video, I watched it on YouTube and, uh, some of it's hilarious and, uh, some of it's really, uh, illuminating, but there's, um, they like do that thing that the history channel used to do where they like reenact scenes of oh, a yeah. person's life with actors and they have like, Kind of makeshift, low budget, like sets and stuff. So like shadowy scenes of somebody dressed as John D shuffling papers around. Yeah. Sort of thing. Yeah. That thing or like him looking into a crystal ball or him just <laughs> walking across a field. Yeah. So I think probably the best way for us to, to really first introduce you to John D is let's just do a broad stroke overview of his life. You know, we've given you sort of the, the two sentence summary of who John D was. But we'll start with his life, and then we'll really dive in deep into the magic stuff. Yeah, for, for with a guy like this, I feel like this is the best approach. We'll give you the broad strokes, and then we'll go back in and discuss the areas that we we uh, we have time to discuss in these episodes. Yeah, yeah, and I just want to say too, like keep in mind that there are uh, people whose like entire career is writing about this guy. So what we cover in like two, two and a half hours of mm-hmm. podcasts, may, you, you may be out there, you may know some stuff about D and be like, well, why didn't you, you cover that? There's only so much we could do here. So we really tried to condense it down to fit the show. All right. Well, here we go. Let's uh, kick it off with July 13th, 1527. John D is born in London, England. Yeah. And my first question is, who raises a guy like John D? Like, how does he, how does he end up like this? So his father, Roland, was a merchant of fabrics and textiles, and he worked for King Henry VIII. Uh, in 1553, his father was actually indicted and imprisoned in the Tower of London, presumably because he had ties to Protestant reformists and sympathizers of the late King Edward. So there's a lot of, this is a, a, a theme that goes on throughout Dee's life is the um, political struggles back and forth between the Catholic and Protestant church. Yeah, that's def- definitely going on in the background the whole time. Now, 1542, John Dee enters St. John's College at Cambridge. Yeah, and so from what I read at the time, uh, the curriculum for such a college included something called the Trivium, which is grammar, rhetoric, and logic. And once you master those things, you get your, what would be your, your bachelor's basically. Uh, and then the quadrivium is what you study for your master's. And that's astronomy, geography, music, and mathematics. Now, okay, again, this is self-reported from his own, uh, thing that he wrote to the queen mm-hmm. later in life. But D says that while he was there, he only slept four hours a night. So all he could do was study. So on one hand, he was essentially applying for a position in this. Yeah. But also, as 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 we discussed more about John D, I I don't really doubt this for a second. He seems like the kind of guy who who may have only slept four hours a night, absolutely. So that he could constantly consume information. So in 1545, he re- he receives that bachelor's degree in arts and readership. 1547, he. Uh, takes uh, his first scientific learning excursion to the low countries of continental Europe. And this becomes important later on because he spends an increasingly increasing amount of times there on various uh, excursions. 1548, he gets his master's degree from Cambridge studying uh, mathematics and navigation. And then 1548 to 1551, his second learning excursion to the low countries. And, uh, in particular on this uh, trip, he studied under uh, mathematician cartographers Pedro Nunes, uh, Gima Frisilius, Abraham Ortelius, and Gerardus Mercator, as well as through his own studies in Paris and elsewhere. Yeah. And these, the second set of travels, these benefited England, what he would do is he'd share his findings from these travels with Queen Elizabeth's associates. So for here's an example. In 1562, he discovered the works of Trithemius, and we're going to talk about this later. He introduced the court and subsequently Elizabeth 
to the study of modern cryptography through this, ultimately changing, uh, I guess, war games, right, with with the way that they use cryptography. Yeah, yeah, we'll we'll definitely get into that in this into the second episode. But this was a time when when coded messages were uh, were really important. This was the mayor a matter of life and life and death. Yeah. Now, as you mentioned, at this time, he is he's he seems to have his sight set on official on an official position with the crown. Mm. And in doing so, he turned down a mathematical uh, professorship at the University of Paris, and he turned down a similar position at the University of Oxford. That was in fifty one and fifty four. Okay. And then he returned to England. He went to court, and there he offered mathematical science instruction to courtiers, to navigators, just uh, generally trying to make himself useful uh, to the court. Right. He served as a consultant and an astrologer to, among others, Queen Mary the First. Yeah. So before he worked for Mary's court, he had a patron who was the Duke of Northumberland. And this guy tried to place his own daughter-in-law on the throne before Mary was placed there. He was charged with treason and executed. And this is one of the first of many times in Dee's life where he had less influence because he had sort of like followed the wrong person. Uh, and he has these periods of like waxing and waning influence over the English monarchy. Yeah. Getting involved in the, the machinations of, uh, of the court here. Um, who's in and who's out, uh, which, which star is rising, which one's falling. So then in 1555, this is when he's jailed on the charge of being a conjurer. He was soon released thereafter, but let, let's pause for a second and try to figure this out. So the thinking here is that Queen Mary's examiners were the ones who jailed him, possibly with charges of conspiring with her sister, Elizabeth, who was a rival at the time. And he was allegedly casting horoscopes for Queen Mary and her family without their permission. And because the predictions were bad for Mary, it was considered to be practicing witchcraft against the crown. The story goes like this, that while Elizabeth was under house arrest, she asked Dee to perform her and Mary's horoscope. And so he did. And it predicted that Elizabeth would have a long reign and that Mary would die, which, you know, kind of happened. And this is what landed him in jail. Now, after this, after he gets out of jail, he's placed under the charge of Edmund Bonner, who is the Bishop of London. And in one of Dee's writings, he actually refers to Bonner as his, quote, singular friend. And there's some dispute about, like, are they actually friends or is this like his sarcastic term for this guy who's like kind of his jailer? Mm-hmm. Um, but after this point, all of Dee's written works included sections defending his reputation from slander. So he was well aware that his mixture of astrology and magic and conjuring with science and mathematics and statesmanship was under scrutiny. And not for the last time. So in 1558, he published an Afrotistic introduction, which presented his uh, his own views on natural philosophy, philosophy and astrology. And uh, then 1558, the same year, this is also when the rule of Queen Elizabeth I begins. Yeah. And so the rumor here, again, this is from D's own writings, is that uh, when Elizabeth took power, she asked Dee to choose her coronation date based on astrology. Now, who knows? I mean, yes, there's evidence that uh, he was jailed performing horoscopes for her previously, so why wouldn't she? Mm-hmm. But then, you know, he's the one claiming this stuff, and we know that later on in life, he's just constantly trying to gain favor with the court by sort of, he's, he's bolstering his resume. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, he becomes the scientific and medical advisor to the queen. And uh, in the mid-1560s, he establishes himself at Mortlake near London, where he builds a, a laboratory, the largest private library in England, more than uh, 4,000 books and manuscripts. And he, uh, you know, we'll, we'll describe some more of the, the settings here, but it, it sounds like a, a fabulous place. Yeah. And he would he would invite other scholars to come in and, and use his books if they needed to look something up. And, of course, he was constantly in communication with other people, like it was – I was reading uh, just yesterday about how he had these correspondence, uh, uh, series of correspondence with uh, with Tycho Brahe. The, oh, um, really? Yeah, the uh, the, the the famed uh, yeah. astronomer. Yeah, famously uh, lost his nose yes. in a sword fight. Yeah, another nose fabulous character like, of the time. Period. Yeah, we should totally do a, a Tycho Brahe episode. Um, 
Yeah. So the other thing about this to note, just for context about the library, we say 4,000 books and some of you are like, yeah, I got 4,000 books in my house, right? Well, here's context. He had 2,670 manuscripts in that collection. Cambridge University at the time only had 451 manuscripts and Oxford University only had 379. So this was considered a massive library at the time. Like if you're thinking about this, like, uh, going back to the, the grimoire episode that you and I did a couple mm-hmm. of years ago, right? Like, like these are not just like pulp books. They're not like soft covers, right? right? Like some of these are written on parchment or they're palimpsests, right? So, I mean, he's got like a serious collection here and the books are unique too. Yeah. In many cases, these would be books where you're wanting to read them. You might ask around and you would find out, oh, well, Dr. D has a copy of that. Yeah. Uh, you should go ask him. Maybe you'll get to look at it. Here's another interesting thing I wanted to point out as well. There's no evidence that he ever uh, earned a doctoral degree, but he yeah. was always referred to as Dr. D. Hmm. Kind of interesting. (laughs) Now, uh, in uh, 1564, he published the hieroglyphic monad in which he offered a single mathematical magical symbol as the key to unlocking uh, the the unity of nature. Yeah. And this, I mean, I guess we'll maybe like post this on the landing page or something. We Mm -hmm. we actually shared or you shared it on Facebook yesterday, kind of teasing the audience. Hey, this is what we're working on. One person got it and they referred to him as the D. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it, it kind of looks like, how do you pronounce that, that German industrial band, Einstraden's? Einstraden's into Newbottens? Yeah. yeah. It does. I, in fact, I had to, to look up, uh, Newbottens logo just to make sure. Yeah. <laughs> that they weren't too similar. Cause I'm like, I never thought about this before, but, yeah. uh, you know, they're, they're two distinct symbols, but they are reminiscent of one another. Yeah. Very much so. For some reason, I also find that it looks like it kind of looks like it could be a character from a SpongeBob cartoon. I don't know. It does have like a anthropologic quality to it of like a head with arms and legs and then like devil's horns. Yeah. Or it makes me think of the uh, the aliens from Slaughterhouse Five for some reason. Uh, the ones where it was like an eye and a hand. Huh. OK. I uh, can't remember the name of them. But uh, at any rate, this was his. Uh, Wait, there's his aliens idea. in Slaughterhouse Five. Yeah. There's a there's a an alien zoo for humans. I forgot all about that part. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I just think about the horrors of Traf- World War II. Mogladorians, <laughs> I want to say. So, uh, in 1570, he uh, created the first English translation of Euclid's Elements uh, and uh, added an influential preface that offered a powerful manifesto on quote the dignity and usefulness of the mathematical sciences. And he seems to to certainly have highly regarded mathematics as the key to understanding the natural world, but also believed in the value of the occult to unlock the deeper mysteries of the universe. And again, his ideas of the occult and mathematics are kind of intertwined. This is definitely going to be a theme that we return to over and over again in these episodes. Mathematics is like the through line for him. Yeah. Uh, whether he, or not he's trying to talk to angels or if he's just trying to plot out maps for people to discover uh, the Northwest Passage. Yeah, I feel like his mind was inherently mathematic. If you if he had lived in our age, I feel like he would undoubtedly be a hacker right, or, right. Or, a, or a high level programmer in addition to, to whatever else he was into. That history special compared him to Stephen Hawking. Huh. And I thought that was an interesting comparison, although I'm still I'm still trying to I don't know if there's anybody alive that that really has these two things together. You're right. Lily and Jack Parsons are similar. But I'm really trying to rack my brain for somebody who's like a really influential intellectual, but also dabbles in the occult. Right. That's still very much an outsider in his interest. Yeah. And speaking of being an outsider in his interest, 1583 through 1589, in order to unlock the deeper mysteries of the universe, D sought communication with angelic entities uh, with the aid of uh, convicted counterfeiter tor- turned uh, occult sensation Edward Kelly. Who's a very complex character yeah. in and of himself. We'll get into Kelly. Yeah. Uh, so, so these two end up running around, uh, conducting seances in England, Poland, and Bohemia and have this rather volatile partnership. <laughs> yeah, it's so, it's like something out of a reality TV show. Yeah. Like 
Oh, you know how like every time on the show, on this show, when, mm-hmm. when we do some of these historical characters are like, oh, this would make a great AMC, uh, oh, yeah. show. The, the Dr. D. Edward Kelly show would be amazing because it'd be like them constantly like conniving behind one another's backs and then sitting in a room looking into a crystal ball, talking to angels and then like trying to figure out how to sleep with one another's wives. Yeah. Th- uh, this is another situation where. D described Kelly as a friend, mm. and it makes me wonder. Like, it makes me question his uh, his criteria for friendship because <laughs> right. he, he talks about Kelly, who was you know, arguably a scoundrel and may have yeah. been conning him half the time at least. And then there is Queen Elizabeth, who you know, there's no way they were really friends. They were, you know, like I say, as much of a friendship as you could have yeah. with the Queen of England. Uh, that bishop I mentioned then, earlier. Yeah, and then his uh, his, his his the the, the warden of his prison essentially <laughs> yeah. at the time. So I don't know. I don't know if D ever really got friendship exactly. But yeah. hey, it's difficult in life. So uh, Kelly and him they 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 end up going to uh, essentially Poland and then Bohemia, conducting their seances all along the way, and then they come back. Yeah, that kind of falls. Up, well, well it does fall D apart. comes back. Yeah, they're they're relationship falls apart. D returns to England in 1589 to try and try and put things back together. He finds his home vandalized. His library has been ransacked. Uh, and he's also come back to an England that is less tolerant of his ideas, increasingly less tolerant. And then the bubonic plague strikes and kills pretty much everybody in his family, including his wife and five of his eight children. So he's Utterly devastated. He's lost his library. He's lost his family. He doesn't have as much influence as he used to. So in 1596, uh, his friends raised money for him and interceded on his behalf with Queen Elizabeth, you know, just trying to land him in the, the right place. Right. So she appoints him warden of Manchester College. And and this is from what I was reading. This is not an ideal place for yeah. him to wind up. He's not, uh, you know, he's, he's constantly being undermined, minded by other individuals there. He he doesn't have a lot of clout, but it's like he a has good a way to shuffle him off and yeah. like get him so he doesn't really have any influence over her court. But he still feels, you know, he's cashing a paycheck. Then in 1603, uh, Queen Elizabeth dies, and uh, James the first. Uh, takes to the throne and provides no support for D. Yeah, so so for some context, James the First was fervently against witchcraft, and he personally oversaw the torture of women who were accused of it. So he's not going to be particularly fond of John D and his angel scrying and uh, astrology and alchemy. And then in December of 1608, D dies following uh, what is described as years of poverty and isolation. However, it it, it so even for someone like D, it doesn't seem like poverty and isolation for him is you know quite the the bottom of the barrel. Poverty and isolation, like this, right. a lot of this is him being forced to sell off a lot of his prized possessions, that sort of thing. Maybe not the you know, the proudest period of his of his life, but I didn't read anything to indicate that he was on the streets. Yeah, so I mean, like to get an indication, I was looking at pictures of um, what Mortlake looked like, his estate. And where it is now today, I think there's like uh, apartments right along the River Thames. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it, you know, by all accounts, like it was a huge house. Uh, he still had a lot of things. I don't think he was going hungry. I just don't think he was wealthy or had influence over the aristocracy the way he might have right. in the past. Um, now, here's this is really interesting. There's also evidence that he didn't actually die in December. Uh, and that he, it, three months later was when he died in the following March in the London home of an acquaintance. So get ready out there, conspiracy theorists, because <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who are like, oh, John D found the Philosopher's Stone and is immortal and, uh, is still with us today or something. Or the, these are fake accounts of his death, you know, uh, stuff like that. Well, the, the amazing thing about D is it's all, everything is already unbelievable enough. Without even going into the conjecture yeah. of conspiracy theory, uh, though th- there's a lot of fun to be had there as well. Um, hey, on that note, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to uh, break into the spirituality of John D. and ultimately into his occult practices. 
Hi, I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And we're the co-hosts of Stuff You Missed in History Class. We are a history podcast that tries to look at the things that maybe were overlooked in your history classes, maybe not covered in as much detail, or frankly, maybe covered in a way that was not accurate. New episodes come out every Monday and Wednesday on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or anywhere else that podcasts can be listened to. So it's important to remember that that Dee was born into an age and a place of Christendom. So, yes, everyone still murdered each other every year over their beliefs. And much of this entailed conflicts of of, uh, Protestants versus Catholics, the church versus heretics and so forth. Uh, You really had to go quite rustic or quite esoteric in order to find alternative modes of belief that you could, you know, actually embrace. Yeah. All of the stranger ideas that D entangled himself with, astrology, angelic communication, magic, etc., these were all still connected to the culture of Christianity and to the essentially like the, the the mythos of Christianity, I guess you'd say. Yeah. And there's a lot of evidence to suggest that D was a devoted Christian his entire life, though certainly in a challenging time for the faithful which I guess it always is. Uh, and he was uh, he was not afraid to explore ideas and writings that others deemed dangerous to the faithful. And it's also worth noting here that like a guy like D, who, you know, you can say was a, a weird guy. He had a he had a unique brain. He had a unique view of everything, uh, this ability to see magic and mathematics and everything else wrapped up into one. So he could, you know, cling to a Christian faith, but his view of the Christian faith was was and it was inherently different, I think, from from most people's at the time. Yeah, I think it was different. But at the same the way I like to think of it is that he was into Christian mysticism. Right. In that, like he 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 was a believer. He was trying to do the right thing. I think he was trying to ride the line between Protestantism and, and, and Catholicism so mm-hmm. that he basically could stay alive. Um, but that the the stuff that he believed was the the mystical parts that were sort of like some people were like oh yeah that 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 exists i don't know if i subscribe to that or not and others were like oh yeah that's part of it yeah oh talking to angels sure mm-hmm. uh looking into crystal balls yeah definitely astrology okay you know um in the same way i don't know i'm like trying to think of a modern day example like i guess kabbalah keeps coming to mind and that's not even modern day i mean kabbalah was uh, right. around at the time d was alive um, so maybe that's an example. Now, you mentioned astrology. Uh, D kept a private diary where he mentioned a lot of uh, what we know comes from his own writings. Uh, but this was a time before diaries and calendars of the modern sort. So D would, would plot out the positions of the planets in reference to the recorded details of his daily life, likely in order to identify links between his personal life and celestial events. So it's a, an uncharacteristically intimate account of Elizabethan life. Uh, much of it lost, however, but still there's a, there's a, a lot there. It's kind of in written in shorthand. Yeah. And it'll include things like, you know, his personal finances, huh. jobs he picked up. Um, I, I actually have an example here f- uh, from his diary. Okay. October 7th, my anger with Edward, my coke, because of his disorder. October 8th, Mr. Richard Western lent me 10 pounds for a year. October 9th. I dined with Sir Walter Raleigh at Durham House, October 11th, to Edwards, part of Waggus. Mr. Banks lent me upon a loan till after Christmas, five pounds. Mr. Emery sent me three pounds by my servant, Richard Walkadine. So it's that sort of thing. So he's just like kind of acquiring like a couple pounds here, a couple pounds there for his services, presumably. I mean, I I doubt that these, they're just giving it to him as donations. Maybe he read their horoscope or maybe he, I don't know, wrote a, a map for them or something. Yeah, it's kind of like an... It's kind of like he kept uh, an astrologically aligned chart of his finances to yeah. a certain extent in these. And he was doing a lot of freelance activities like to to because he's a guy who spent a lot of money on books yeah. and uh, and his uh, his his interests. And to support that, he would do freelance horoscopes. Yeah, freelance uh, dream interpretations. And I was even reading uh, that he occasionally did some freelance forensics work. There was uh, an account of him, apparently of of him weighing in on a robbery uh, and deciding who was, uh, who was guilty. It's kind of, it's kind of faint going from his notes, but that seems to be the case. Huh? So D believed in 
a natural magic. When we start talking about his use of magic and his belief in magic and this magic that's tied up with mathematics, he saw magic as the human ability to tap into the forces that God unleashed when he created the cosmos and that set things in motion. So that's important. Not not the power of God, but the powers that God unleashed. Yeah, he saw natural magic as actually a legitimate study of science. And in his own books, he listed the magical arts as being a derivative subject of mathematics. Keep in mind that his thought process wasn't unusual at the time. Many thought science and magic were different facets to just understand understand what was going on in the mind of God. Yeah, and it's interesting, too, to, to look at his thoughts on magic, that he's essentially talking about technology here, uh, granted with a lot of uh, occult bells and whistles. But he's yeah. talking about figuring out how these forces in the universe work and figuring out how to manipulate those forces. You know, it's a really interesting uh, connection to to the magic as technology thing for him. When he was in college, he created special effects for a production oh, of yes. Aristophanes' Pax. And he was branded a sorcerer because of it. He apparently built a giant mechanical flying scarab. I don't know if it actually flew, but it was it was like an automaton. And uh, it was apparently so realistic to the people who were watching it that they, they were like, oh, he must have used magic to do this. But it was just engineering. Yeah, this was a, a crazy uh, moment in his life. And his life was just full of these. Where yeah, yeah. He just uh, did FX for a play, and the FX were so good that people said, well, that was pretty amazing. This guy is probably somehow um, involved with demonic forces. Yeah. It's the only excuse. <laughs> And and I was reading, like, people aren't really sure exactly how he pulled it off, too, because right. he would have had limited uh, resources with the stage at that time. So it's not we're not even exactly sure what he did, how he achieved the effect. But uh, but he he certainly w- was I, th- I think it was pr- pretty clear that he was using practical effects and yeah. not not actual sorcery here. Um, another thing that we should note here, too, especially before we really get into his angelic communication, is that. The idea of an angelic language, which is referred to as a Nokian, is said to be the mathematics behind how creation was was made. So, you know, keep in mind, like as we're going through all of this, he's thinking of his interrogations of angels as being scientific in nature and that he's trying to understand how the world works. Yes, yeah, so in, in a sense, the Enochian language and mathematics are like one is the secular and one is the spiritual yeah. version of the same idea, that there's this underlying word, there's this underlying uh, system that we can understand, tap into, and therefore gain insight into how the universe works. Yeah. All right, so here's the juicy stuff, the angelic communication. So he really wanted to communicate with angels to help him understand natural knowledge. And the way he did this was by attempting to conjure spirits using a crystal. And this, this was common at the time. Yeah. And it's, I want to add real quick for anyone out there who's not familiar with, with Christianity and, and angels and all that. Cause I found myself trying to explain angels to my son the other oh, day. Cause yeah. he was asking him yeah. about it, about what angels were. Uh, and I didn't tell him all of this, but in the in in the Christian tradition, the angels are of course the the servants of God. They are powerful and at times very terrifying uh, beings. Yeah, that do everything from deliver messages to you know destroy whole cities and turn people into pillars of salt. That sort of thing. I uh, I wrote a video that we shot here uh, about different types of angels throughout Christian mysticism, mm-hmm. and there's like you know there's the thrones and the dominions, and there yeah. are all there's like nine different categories. I think cherubs. Yeah. Seraphim, yeah. Uh, and yeah, I mean they're utterly alien and terrifying when you think about them from the context of D's time. Yeah. Um, These were not the fluffy uh, (laughs) cherubs, the the modern version of the cherubs or Renaissance cherub that you see on a coffee mug or something. Yeah, no, not at all. Not at all. Some of them were like wheels of burning fire with eyeballs in the middle and stuff. I mean, like truly horrifying kind of imagery. Yeah. Uh, fantasy uh, illustrator uh, Michael Kaluta. Oh, sure yeah. yeah. Michael Kaluta is great. Yeah. He did a number of angel illustrations for a short lived card game called Heresy Kingdom Come back in the 90s. Oh, yeah. And he did a fabulous dr- job invoking this. I feel like the, this this potent 
intimidating, alien, but also kind of, but also holy feeling vision of, uh, of an angelic entity. So I always yeah. come back to those when I try and, and think about these, uh, these angelic beings as we encounter in, uh, in, in Christian tradition. And I imagine as Dee was performing these seances that we're about to talk about, although he didn't really see anything himself, that's what he was imagining was in the room with him. So why didn't he see anything himself? Well, D himself couldn't see spirits, so he relied on psychics. Enter Edward Kelly. So Edward wow. Kelly uh, is this 26-year-old cunning man. You may have heard us talk about cunning men before on uh, the show. I was referring to them in an episode of um, when we were talking about Warren Ellis's book, Cunning Plans, because... Mm-hmm. Cunning men are sort of, I guess the best way to explain it real quickly is just like an English shamanic tradition, maybe. Okay. Um, and, but he was also, you know, a criminal and a counterfeiter. He had his ears cropped from his head before he met D. So think about that when you're thinking about this guy. Yeah, at uh, least one of them. And he apparently always wore um, a cowl to cover up the discourage. Yeah. And that was for counterfeiting coins. Um, okay. So D and Kelly, they meet for the first time in 1582. Yeah. And this, this whole episode has, there's a lot more detail, but I'll just try to go through the basics here. So Kelly was calling himself, uh, Talbot at the time, which was one of his, uh, his aliases. And, uh, and it's, I think it's certainly fitting that even his introduction to D was, was clothed in deception. <laughs> So he was apparently, he was apparently a pretty charismatic character, as we've talked about. He had difficulty kneeling, he walked with a staff, and he's a young dude, but, uh, but he also had, uh, had at least one ear cropped, uh, for, uh, for, for engaging in counterfeiting. He also may have served as a crooked notary in London at one port, uh, at one point, uh, reputed to have dabbled in necromancy. He arrived at D's to lie low after allegedly cheating a lady out of some jewels. But he seems to have to have talked his way out of uh, trouble with uh, with the individuals who were pursuing him over this. <laughs> and in his private uh, diary, D noted that, quote, I have confirmed that Talbot was uh, was a fraud. OK. And Kelly himself came along later at some point and scribbled in D's diary a horrible and slanderous lie, <laughs> which which I think says a lot about this friendship. Yeah. Um, it, it, so that, yeah, their friendship seems to have been rather complicated. Uh, D seems to have uh, considered him a friend, and certainly would go on to spend a great deal of time with him in the years ahead. Uh, but is also a quarrelsome, intense relationship. And to what extent was Kelly using D? To what extent did D see himself as using Kelly? If he, he saw he saw perhaps Kelly as a as an in a way of uh, of of better communicating with this spiritual realm. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, it's a complex relationship again. So D's diary recounts a series of conversations with angels that Kelly facilitated. And the hope was that D would get these angels to help him recover the original language spoken by Adam before the confusion at Babel, which, you know, we refer to earlier as Enochian. Um, and the, the way that we know about this was these spirit diaries were actually dug up in a field 10 years after his death. And in them is a completely new language with its own grammar and syntax. Uh, the angels supposedly provided him with the Enochian language, which they said was the Ur language of humanity. And I want to, I want to add one thing in here, which is that I know as I was reading through all this stuff, I was, I was utterly convinced that Edward Kelly was scamming D the whole time mm-hmm. and that he was just making up the names of these angel characters and performing their whatever their traits were and just making the whole thing up. But Alan Moore in that History Channel thing points out, sure, that's probably true, but how on earth did somebody like Edward Kelly invent an entire language on the fly. He wasn't a linguistics expert. He would have had to have been a genius to just create a fake language out of nowhere. And people have since studied Enochian, have looked over these notes, and it's, you know, it it, it functions as a language. So, uh, you know, the big question is like, well, okay, if he wasn't talking to angels, how did Edward Kelly come up with this stuff? Yeah, because you're left with a few possibilities here, as I understand. It's either... A, he actually did come up with this, this material. Yeah. And there's some questions about, about whether or not he had the background to do it. Um, the other possibility, and this seems 
this seems to, to square with what we know about his um, his character. Perhaps he stole it from yeah. somewhere. He uh, he copied it from someone else. And we're just uh, there's a, there's a certain amount of ambiguity about where that might have been uh, where, where it might have been stolen from. Right. Yeah. And that we don't know. Now, Kelly, as he was looking through his crystal ball or his scrying mirror, said that the angels were angry with humanity for being captivated by anything but God. And, and they described 2D the order of the cosmos, instructions for rituals and predictions of the future, as well as this Enochian language. Their major pronouncement was that, that they wanted the world to be united under a single religion that united all the denominations of Christianity along with Judaism and Islam. So essentially, you know, 400 years ago, these angels, quote unquote, were advocating for globalism. Huh. So it's kind of fascinating when yeah. you think about it, especially like if we consider like Kelly was probably making the whole thing up. He was like advocating for this very like futuristic idea of uh socioeconomics and yeah. you know it's it's fascinating yeah i can easily imagine a scenario where uh where one of these uh, angels is saying look christianity Juda- judaism islam these uh these factions are not going to work everything out in the foreseeable future better that we just combine it all into one and right. then everybody can be unified now, for Kelly's part, as you know, as he's relaying these messages from the angels, he's also saying to D, these angels are actually demons, and I'm terrified of them because they know that I previously had participated in some demonic grimoire magic. Um, and D was like, "Nope, we've got to continue. I absolutely insist that we continue." I mean, Kelly was basically like a prisoner in D's home, um, and the two of them even asked the angels for money at one point, and Kelly reportedly asked them for a loan. Like, oh, wow. like they were going to make money appear out of nowhere and then he would give it back to them or something. I don't know. So and and uh, keep in mind, too, it, it's very likely that this is all just a fiction in his own head that he's enacting in front of D for D's purposes. Right. But then also, I mean, when, when you're when you're dealing with this kind of magic and and if you're considering this uh, some sort of demonic entity that you're uh, you're communicating with, uh, I mean, th- that has some very real life uh, ramifications. Yeah. Not an age where you can just walk around on the street and talk about your conversations with demons. So while they're in the middle of all this and they're they're working out of Mortlake, they uh, come into contact with a third party. And this guy's name, he's a Polish prince, and his name is Lord Albert Lasky. Uh, and he had visited England and claimed that he was there simply to meet the queen and enjoy the scenery. Uh, he had previously been suspected of trying to steal the Polish throne. Everybody's trying to steal a throne in this story. <laughs> yeah, I think that's an important thing to, to keep in mind about the about the European setting at the time is this was not an age of stability. This was right. an age of of tense politics, an age of war, an age of uh, of, of rather robust uh, espionage um Coded messages going back and forth yeah. and and people people dying uh, when these codes are unraveled. So Lasky's involvement with these guys is is weird and debated. And Robert and I had to look to a couple different books to try to figure out how much we could, you know, uh, resolve as to what was his involvement in the situation. Uh, apparently he started showing up at the seances and this was, uh, considered problematic, I think by Kelly because there was a third party involved there, probably because Kelly was afraid that he would get caught. Yeah. Um, but also the idea was basically like, why would you, why would you sit on on these seances? Some demon could come out and destroy you. You know, it's like this horribly scary thing. There's also, you know, some question about whether or not he was an informer either for Poland or possibly the Holy Roman Empire. Um, either way, it seems that he was the one who eventually leads them to Poland. Um, and the, the story goes is that he was duped by Edward Kelly in the whole scrying thing. And he believed that great things were meant for Kelly. Uh, and so he convinces them to return to Poland with him in 1583 and they pack up their whole family, uh, and all their stuff with them, except for the library, this huge library. Uh, now, there's a lot of stuff that goes on in Poland, and we'll get into that. But 
when they get there, their experiments, whatever they were doing, I think it was alchemical in, in, in nature, were so costly that Lasky lost his fortune and lands trying to fund the two of their work. And when it became apparent that he couldn't afford this any longer, uh, the spirits began to express their doubts through Kelly that Lasky may not have been the right man to bring about the changes in Europe that they desired. <laughs> Yeah, now this is a period of time where, uh, where Kelly just increasingly seems like he's just a con artist. Yeah. You know, making promises of gold, like generating gold through alchemy for his benefactors. And then here, when things don't go, uh, as planned, when he can't deliver, he casts doubt on his benefactors. Yeah. And, and in the way that Lasky basically gets rid of them is he says, you know, I'm going to pay for you guys to go to Prague. And I'll provide you with a letter of introduction to Emperor Rudolph II. Now, <laughs> You're his problem now. <laughs> now we, I think we mentioned this in the, 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 you know, the, the short bio at the beginning, but apparently, you know, Rudolph threw D out of the Holy Roman Empire. Now, some say it was because he suspected that D was an English spy. Now, considering, you know, what we know about D and cryptography and statecraft, maybe he was. And we're going to talk about that more in the next episode, but there's also evidence that the angels told D that he needed to go to Rudolph and tell Rudolph that he was possessed by demons. Now, the Catholic Church were aware of this, and they considered D and Kelly a threat. Think about this, though, like in context of the time. D is so much of a believer in what Kelly is telling him that he's willing to go to the emperor and be like, sorry, uh, you're possessed by demons and you, you know, you need to really turn your life around. Why don't you listen to us? I mean, that's an executable offense. Mm-hmm. Luckily, he just was exiled. Now, it seems that D was very sincere about this, while it also seems that Kelly was probably duping him. And their relationship lasted for 10 years. Here's where it all falls apart. So the angels told them to swap wives. Again, it sounds like a reality TV show to me. Yeah. Uh, There's this angel that they keep communicating with named Medimi, and she's described as being kind of this, um, I don't know, like coquettish little girl that uh, Kelly would describe her as like running around the room and stuff. And she told them, you guys have to share all things in common. And they interpreted that as meaning their wives. Now, Jane D., was uh, D's wife at the time. She was his third wife. He'd had two previous wives who died, I believe, of illness. Uh, she was much younger than him. I think she was in like her mid-20s and he was in his 50s. And she was reportedly very upset about this because by all accounts, Edward Kelly was not uh, a, a, an attractive man or, you know, a trustworthy man. Right. So the last thing she wanted to do was have to sleep with this guy. But D thought it was a valid command from the angels. Uh, especially because then even D was like, Hey, I need some, uh, some confirmation on this. So Kelly's like, okay, let me look into the, uh, scrying ball over here. And he summons the angel Uriel, uh, who's like a I, pretty high up in the hierarchy of angels. And Uriel confirms that he's like, yep, you guys have to share everything. So two days after they drew up their wife swapping contract, then, the Scarlet Woman Babylon appeared to Kelly. Now, uh, some of you may recognize this from like a Crowleyan magic. Uh, she's also known as the Whore of Babylon in Revelations. This was so scary to them, or at least to Dee, that they parted ways and their sessions ceased forever. They, 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 their relationship ended. Kelly ended up wandering around Bohemia and he then convinces Rudolph II, hey, uh, I, I know alchemy. I, I might be able to use a philosopher's stone to make you gold. <laughs> yeah, and this would uh, this would seem to be the uh, just to spell the, the final chapter of of Edward Kelly's life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at, at this point in the story, I really Dee and Kelly certainly kind of created seem to have created like codependently their their own little crazy uh, trip here. And, uh, and I, I feel, feel bad for the, the women that were, were sucked along the way. Yeah. Uh, but it, things finally come apart. They come to pieces. I feel like D is the, the character who certainly comes out off as more honest, more devout. Yeah. Whereas, uh, is, you know, Kelly is, is probably just con, a con artist who's also, uh, buying into certain amounts of his own con. Yeah. 
So uh, I, I don't think one should take solace from such things, but it seems that Kelly uh, died in 1597 or 1598 in a Czech castle where he was imprisoned for failing to produce that alchemist gold. And he apparently died from injuries sustained while trying to escape. According to Benjamin Woolley's book, um, Kelly tried to climb from the window on a rope of knotted sheets, you know, just like in the movies. Yeah. Uh, and then fell, breaking both legs. And uh, this was after drugging the guards with opium smuggled in by his <laughs> wife, uh, Joanna. This guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. D later writes that he'd heard that Kelly, quote, had been slain. And there were rumors that uh, that Kelly, even at the time, had faked his own death and was continuing to practice alchemy in southern Germany or possibly Russia. Yeah. But uh, and then then the conspiracy theorists would say, like, he went on to live for hundreds of years and he was Rasputin. Right. But I (laughs) I have a feeling and it seems like the more uh, historians tend to agree that, yeah, he probably fell out of that, fell from that, uh, that, that rope of sheets and broke both his legs and then subsequently died of the injuries. Yeah, that sounds right to me. So uh, why don't we take one more break and then let's talk about the sort of spiritual artifacts uh, that come up after Dee's death. I'm Kristen Conger. And I'm Caroline Irvin. And together we host a podcast, Stuff Mom Never Told You, that gets down to the business of being women from every imaginable angle. New episodes come out Mondays and Wednesdays on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. All right, we're back. So D was, for, for whatever else D was, and certainly he was a lot of things, Again, all kind of woven together. He was certainly a collector of occult uh, paraphernalia and occult books. Uh, and we still have some of these spiritual artifacts. The, the British Museum retains ownership of several items that he and, and Kelly utilized in seances and other rites. So we've already talked about these extensive library. And uh, you can think of it in these terms. This is the way that D divided it. You had the Externa Bibliotheca which is the external library. You had several rooms or appendices which led off from the library. And uh, in these appendices, uh, visitors uh, to, to his uh, home described celestial and terrestrial globes, uh, a five-foot quadrant, a ten-foot uh, cross staff, a sea compass, an accurate, quote, watch clock, uh, portable timepiece, various marvels from his travels, and these rooms also housed his lab- his laboratories, uh, where uh, multiple stills bubbled. <laughs> you know, it sounds like a complete uh, you know set from uh, like a Hammer horror film. Yeah, there's no. Uh, it's not a coincidence that our modern day idea of what a wizard or a sorcerer looks like is D. I yeah, mean, yeah, that idea of him in the robe with a big long white beard. Yeah, we have uh, some various illustri- we have various illustrations of of what he looked like, and I, I think there's probably one is the cover image for this episode, so you have already have an idea in your head. But yeah, he he looked like our modern conception of a wizard. Yeah. Uh, so he had uh, he had all these these rooms filling off uh, from the library from the external library, uh, but then there was also the interna biblioteca, the private study, an adjoining chapel, and there was also an adjoining chapel uh, where, to quote Wooley, he presumably shelved the Bibles and devotional texts so conspicuously lacking from the catalogs of the externa biblioteca, uh, but the uh, interna. Uh, Bibliotheca, the internal library. This is where he stored his magical equipment, his confidential writings, and certain books of frequent use. Huh. And, uh, by the way, if this, if this sounds like a rather costly man cave, <laughs> you're right. Uh, it uh, steadily became unsustainable on his mere 80 pound annual stipend, uh, from his, um, uh, rectory at Long, uh, Leadenham. And so he provided, this is why he provided a number of freelance services, including tutoring, astrological readings, dream interpretation, medical co- uh, consultations, and, uh, forensic advice, which I already mentioned. So, uh, um, among the various items in his possession, uh, again, a few of them, uh, survive to this day. And one of them is, uh, Dr. D's Magical Mirror, also known as Dr. D's Magical Speculum. Oh. That uh, this I I don't know where we're going, but this already <laughs> sounds bad. Okay. So uh, there's some wonderful images of this, and I'll try to include some on the landing page for this episode at stufftoblowyourmind.com. 
the the black mirror here, this uh, this magical mirror. It's probably not quite what you would imagine if someone asked you to envision an Elizabethan sorcerer's mirror. It looks rather like part of an Ikea coffee table, actually. Okay. It's an obsidian, quote, smoking mirror, so named because a scryer gazing into the mirror would see clouds of smoke, which would part uh, to reveal a vision. Uh, and, and this is definitely an item that Edward Kelly made use of as well. Okay. Apparently, it's of Aztec origin, brought to Europe after the conquest of Mexico, acquired by Dr. D for use in his magical pursuits uh, in the late 16th century, uh, perhaps created, though, up to two centuries earlier in Mexico. And this is in the British Museum? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, obsidian. There's a wood case covered in tooled leather uh, with label and a handwriting of one Horace Walpole uh, and a quotation from a Samuel Butler poem. So do you think this is where the idea for the title of the show Black Mirror came from? I've I've never seen there I've never seen any connective tissue there, but I couldn't help but think of it. You know, yeah. the scrying mirror. I know that the, the black mirror uh, that uh, on the TV show is uh, you know supposed to have to do with uh, like the 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 the, uh, the black uh, screens the screen. of yeah. our personal devices. But it, it does make me think too now about scrying mirrors, and I wonder. Yeah, I wonder to what extent uh, a smoking mirror uh, is invoked in that. Right now, this is not to be confused with the strange mirror. Uh, just uh, as, as it was uh, sometimes called, that was given to D by one William Pickering, the, quote, great perspective glass. And this ap- apparently stood in a corner of his study. And according to Wooley, anyone who lunged at the glass with a dagger found their reflection lunging back at them, quote, with like hand, sword or dagger, creating an unsettling effect. Uh, but one that D would use to explain how all strange effects could be explained by the mathematics of perspective. Okay. So this was not something that he apparently used in occult practices. And I guess based on what we know about it, it would have been a non-reversing mirror of which there's a few different varieties. Mm-hmm. And uh, the queen herself uh, apparently once stood before this mirror. Okay. Now, he also had two crystal balls, uh, one of which... Uh, uh, good old uh, Edward Kelly or Talbot used to see Uriel. Mm. Uh, there's uh, the Seal of God or Sigillum Dei used to support other occult objects uh, such as the crystals. This is also in the British Museum. So this would have been kind of, you know, the table for their uh, their, yeah. their other objects. Uh, there are the crystals themselves, one of which is in the, the British Museum. Uh, John Dee's crystal used for a clairvoyance and for curing disease, metal and quartz, uh, from around 1582, uh, you can also see uh, images of this. Uh, so it's it's fascinating. We have some of the the magical artifacts of his life, of yeah. his time, still with us today. He, yeah, it, I can't help but think about again, like the research that we did about grimoires. In that, uh, that a lot of those were created, I think, earlier than Day's time. But he's still relying on a lot of the. I guess magical thinking would be the right mm-hmm. way to put it, um, that surrounded those texts and then applied them to objects in the way that we now understand as being just like part of fantasy genre yeah. of like, well, this is how a wizard works. They have a staff and a crystal and uh, a huge library, right? Uh, yeah. It's interesting that, you know, certainly Merlin is the, 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 the perfect example of the, the, the English wizarding character. Yeah. And it's certainly a character that, uh, that had an influence on D. But then D himself becomes this, this influential icon of, of English wizardry. Uh, and, and it's almost certain that William Shakespeare modeled the character of Prospero in The Tempest on the character of D. Yeah. Uh, th- th- an interesting, again, tying it back to the whole Alan Moore thing. In Alan Moore's League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, Prospero shows up as a character, ah. and it's heavily implied that he is John D. You know, uh, speaking of, of sort of modern interpretations, I was looking around. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, Rocky Horror uh, mastermind uh, Richard O'Brien played Dr. D oh, yeah. in the 1978 film Jubilee, which is kind of like a time-traveling Elizabethan thing. Huh. 
Actor David Threlfall played both Prospero and Dr. John D., uh, the later in the second Elizabeth movie. Okay, yeah, I was going to ask the Golden that Age. because there's been these Elizabeth movies, and I thought they must have included D somehow. Yeah, I have not seen the Golden Age, but he apparently he shows up in that for okay, sure. Okay, okay. As do some of these other characters, especially ones we'll discuss in the next episode that uh, that deals a little more closely with his, you know, his real world pursuits. Mm. And then wait a minute, there's a note here about Terrence McKenna. Yeah, uh, so this largely according to Internet Movie Database, Terrence McKenna played D in the alchemical dream rebirth of the great work. And, uh, the whole, you can find the whole thing on YouTube. Uh, it seems like he just, like McKenna just narrates it. Okay. I, I didn't watch the whole thing, but I didn't, I didn't notice a scene in which he dresses up as D. But still, that's like a, um, I don't know, like modern day quote magicians slash uh, psychedelic psychonauts uh, dream come true, that yeah. kind of a thing. Yeah, so it's interesting to see D's influence in uh, in in modern society and entertainment. There there are a whole list of uh, of examples that we're not even going to get into where D shows up in various fictional works to varying degrees, either as a as a, an amazing side character or occasionally as a central character. Huh. Well, okay, so I feel like we've covered as well as we can in the time available to us the occult magical aspects of D. Now, we're going to cut this episode, and our next episode this week is going to be all about his contributions to science, to statecraft, and cryptography. That's right. So pick up with us again in the next episode, and we will dive into more uh, tantalizing details about the life and work of Dr. John D. Now, in the meantime, if you want to get in touch with us, don't forget that we are available on social media at Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram. Uh, and you can always visit us at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. And if you want to send us a, an email the old-fashioned way, you don't have to use any uh, fancy wizarding equipment. You don't need a, 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 a magic mirror or a scrying crystal. Just send it to BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Constantly making trips to Home Depot? Introducing Drop, the app that rewards you for every shopping trip. Earn free gift cards for shopping. Download the Drop app now and use code DROP33 to get $5 in points. You wouldn't expect to hear that we're America's third best city for beer like this one. Or home to vibes like this. And this. It might surprise you that we're top 10 for immersive art that's like. Whoa. And. Hmm. Not to mention, we have one of the top zoos in the country. So can a city with the country's best pro soccer team, ranking as a top culinary destination in the world, be in your own backyard? Yes, Columbus. Plan your summer at experiencecolumbus.com slash summer. Diamonds Direct has done it again. This month only, get ready for an offer you can't resist. Buy a natural diamond engagement ring of one carat plus and receive a free natural one carat diamond tennis bracelet valued at $2,000. That's right, a stunning diamond tennis bracelet at no extra cost. Imagine giving her the ring of her dreams and her wedding gift all at once. So hurry into Diamonds Direct. Your chance to get a free tennis bracelet will not last long. Details at DiamondsDirect.com. Your credit card should match your lifestyle. At Kemba Financial Credit Union, choose a card with benefits that work for you. For a limited time, all cards have 2% cash back on purchases and 0% interest on balance transfers for a year. Apply at Kemba.org. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.